The final series of cases was discussed by Dr. Grothy in Berlin, beginning with a patient of Dr. K. S. Kumar, whose patient had a subtle pathology finding of unknown significance. It's a 66-year-old white gentleman who presented with a vague abdominal pain lasting for about a one and a half month. He had a CAT scan of the abdomen, which showed some questionable lesion in the liver and a mass in the left colon. The liver lesion was further evaluated by an MRI, which showed that the CT finding was just an artifact and there was no real lesion in the liver. The colonoscopy showed there was a lesion in the descending colon, four to five centimeters. He underwent left colon resection. 20 nodes were removed. None of them were positive. There was no lymphatic or vascular invasion. There was no serocell involvement, but pericolonic fat was involved. But the pathologist reported multiple small microabscesses. I had to call the pathologist back and ask him, where are these microabscesses? Are they away from the tumor or within, very next to the tumor? Then she reviewed the slides, and then they said, these microabscesses are related to the tumor. At the area of the tumor, microabscesses. So my question here was, I was almost not going to give him chemotherapy. Then I said, if these microabscesses, could this be construed as signs of early perforation? If they are next to the tumor, if I make the case that the tumor has perforated, then does he become on a high risk? Should we consider chemotherapy? That's the main reason I bring this case. So, Jordan, can you talk a little bit about evaluation of a patient with negative nodes and what you think about this specific situation in terms of risk? Okay, he made it really hard. Um, That's the idea. <laughs> <laughs> I like easy. Everything up until the microabscesses are exactly, as you mentioned, stage 2 patient, low risk for recurrence, 20 negative nodes. You're well past the 12 lymph nodes required to be that. I don't remember if you said it was well or moderately differentiated. Moderately differentiated. Moderately differentiated, which again is better prognosis, no lymphovascular invasion. With all the simple techniques that we have to monitor and risk assess, the simple pathologic techniques we have, this patient's low risk and would be a very reasonable candidate for observation alone. The microabscesses bring up an interesting question. How did he get them? Why? The perforation possibility scares me too. And that would be my first thought is, could this be perforation? And perforation changes everything in the world. You go from low risk to extremely high risk. And so that's the problem. The other thing is, of course, are all those microabscesses gone, or is there something left behind in this gentleman? Because, of course, if you do give him anything and you make him neutropenic, you hate the big surprises. I'm not into big surprises. Any way you could find that out at this point? I don't know of a good way. These are microabscesses. It's not like there's a good scan for looking at it. Bottom line, what would you do or recommend? Well, the nice thing is you have the post-op period to observe. If there's abscesses, you have the chance that they'll start developing fever or white count or something to give them a clue. And I would probably treat them as a potential early perforation. So um, what would you recommend specifically? This is a very high-risk stage 2. And although the data is not completely clear from the mosaic trial because there wasn't really a pre-planned assessment of this group of patients, there's at least the hints that Fulfox is a better choice in preventing recurrence in them. I probably would lean more towards Fulfox. I feel very aggressive at this moment. So it's, this is my aggressive moment. I'll go back passive in a few minutes. Axel? I would not treat this patient because I do not think this is really a documented perforation. It's no obstruction. 
I'm completely unclear about the value of microabscesses. I mean, I would assume that the microabscesses are gone because you said it was around Margins the tumor, it was in the context of the tumor. So let's play a different role. Say, okay, this is an inflammatory response against the tumor. And we've more recently with the idea of lymph nodes, numbers, whatever, talked about the influence of the immune system on tumor control, even a localized tumor. So I could actually I mean, think, would that look like an abscess? No, you know, I don't know. But abscesses, would you really think this is clearly related to perforation? Because the tumor did not penetrate through the wall. Did you say that? Not grossly. No, no. The pathology report reads exactly, the tumor invades an architecturally complex granular structure lined by tall columnar epithelium with moderate nuclear polymorphism, associated necrosis and focal calcification. No serosal involvement is identified. There is focal abscess formation with extension of sheets of neutrophils to the serosal surface. No unequivocal angiolymphatic invasion is noted. Would not make me worry too much. I would personally, perhaps I'm just a counterpoint to you, and I don't feel aggressive right now. I feel very relaxed in spite of my Red Bull. Uh, uh, I would not treat this patient. Would you discuss the option of treatment yes, and would. treat if he wanted? Yes, of course I would. I mean, if this situation where I'm not perfectly sure, we're kind of speculating a little bit, if the patient wants to say, you know, I want to be on the safe side, and there are patients who say, even if you tell me it might not be necessary from clinical, I just want to do everything I can to get this 1% and we or 0.5% of improvement in my outcome out of this situation, I would be happy to treat this patient. Incidentally, we asked the faculty yesterday how much benefit they'd want, absolute benefit and relapse rate in order to take adjuvant chemo. And it was in the range of about 3 to 6 or 7%, which yeah. is kind of what we saw with the patients, although there was a fraction, and a third of the patients we asked 1%. would go for 1%. Jordan? I'd like to amend mine to note that I would have a lengthy discussion with the patient about So you'd be this. okay with not treating, too? Uh, you know, if this patient wasn't super aggressive, uh, you know, listening to Axel, he makes good sense. It's Thank a you. real tough situation. <laughs> yeah, it's rare that, I don't know if I haven't drank Red Bull. Um, I had alcohol, that's why it makes more sense. Um, the... <laughs> The bottom line is that I think that there are patients who will want more aggressive treatment, patients who want less. I don't know what this microabscess means either, but you know, I'd be worried that it does mean focal perforation. This issue of how you discuss these things and, quote, presenting options and how do you present them in a balanced way, I want to ask you, Axel, if you have a patient who has absolutely no high-risk features, so this same patient without the microabscess, would you bring up the issue of adjuvant therapy and would you treat if they said, you know, I know it's questionable, I know it's very borderline, but I've got kids, I want to do everything possible? I mean, the discussion in this situation can be very lengthy, and rightfully so, because I would present probably even show the curves of the mosaic data just to have some patients really like some visual impressions sometimes better than others. And the problem with the mosaic data are, however, we're comparing Fox against 5-Fulucovorin. So we don't have really good understanding of few versus no treatment from recent trials, some more modern we're trials. Or Fox versus no or treatment. Or Fox versus no treatment. So we're starting from a different baseline. Um, so in, in the end, we're extrapolating the findings into a treatment or no treatment decision, which is probably not really justified by the data. And that's, if you talk to Norm Walmark, he really doesn't see a big difference between stage two and stage three. All NSBP trials have always incorporated both stages. So along those lines, how I would talk to the patient, I still think that overall, when we look at the contributions of 
different chemotherapy drugs to the efficacy in the adjuvant setting, Favifu is probably the most important drug we have, even in the context of oxaplatin. So the incremental gain we get from no treatment to Favifu is larger than from Favifu to oxaplatin. Now we were talking again, I don't know that one of the things that's kind of interesting is that people within one sort of tumor don't necessarily know the culture, what goes on, you know, in other tumors. And we were talking yesterday at what you all know, which is in breast cancer, when you get into a more borderline situation, you tend to dial down the therapy. So a lot of times they won't use taxanes, for example, in a low-risk patient, but they will use chemotherapy. And I was surprised when the exact data came out, and I didn't really see the same thing happening in a colon. I was expecting people to say, okay, maybe in lower-risk situations, we'll dial down the therapy in terms of the risk-benefit ratio. But Jordan, I see people more like, okay, it's going to be full FOX or not. Is that kind of the way you approach it? No, no, I actually don't. Again, this patient, if you believe the microabscess represents perforation, then this patient becomes a very high risk as opposed to just a high risk, a poorly differentiated patient or a person who's kind of going all the way through the wall, something like this. Perforation represents a lot more to me. A lot of my stage two patients, like Axel, I think stage two colon cancer, new patients are my longest patient visits at this point because the data is so controversial. My stage two patients get a lengthy discussion of options going from no therapy through five of you alone to oxaliplatin-based therapy. And again, you know, when it comes to exact data, I have given capecitabine for stage two disease, but the truth is the exact trial was a stage three trial. And we don't know if the biology of stage two and stage three are the same. And I think that's a big issue that we haven't really, really dealt well with, including in discussion. Again, as Axel pointed out, NSABP tends to treat stage two and stage three the same. But the different stages, how a person could go through and have an asymptomatic colon cancer or possibly a bleeding colon cancer, something like that, and it can grow to four or five centimeters and still be stage two, no negative, versus another person who's got a three centimeter lesion, and it's gone through and you've got 17 lymph nodes positive, you've got two different biologies of disease. There's no question. And Axel, you know, one of the things, again, that we carry over from breast cancer, and you know, that's one of the things about Norms, he does breast and colon. So mm-hmm. more than anybody he's tuned into this is they say, you know, breast cancer, there is no line between node negative, node positive. It's just a continuum, relative risk reduction, calculate the numbers, et cetera. And yet, maybe you want to comment on the presentation that Mike O'Connell did at ASCO in colon that really kind of shocked me. I don't know if it's really true or not, but can you explain what he presented? Mike O'Connell tapped into a database of about 21,000 patients accumulating the so-called Accent project, where this database now has individual patient data from various clinical trials in the adjuvant setting. And so we have a lot of data to work with. So he presented an interesting observation at ASCO this year, looking at patients who had recurrent metastatic disease at some time after their adjuvant early stage setting. And he could easily show, and very nicely show, that the prognosis of a patient with recurrent disease, when patients have metastatic disease, depended on the initial tumor stage. Stage two did much better than stage three patients. And this is not necessarily intuitive at first, because we think, you know, as soon as a patient has recurrent disease, all stage four disease would be equivalent and would have similar prognosis. But apparently, the tumor more or less memorized its initial stage and behaved differently. So whatever it is, it goes along the lines of what Jordan said. There's apparently a difference in tumor biology, which translates from the early stage into the metastatic recurrence setting. And the difference in outcome was actually so profound, larger than anything we see when we treat 
with agents or different agents in the palliative setting. And this has implications for our perception of tumor biology, for stratifications of patients in clinical trials and all these things. But it really highlights there might be a difference between adequately stage two and stage three. And let me kind of get one point across us for our listeners. There is an ongoing trial for stage two patients, which acknowledges, yeah, there is probably a group of patients that needs to be treated very aggressively and a group of patients that doesn't need treatment at all. And this is actually one of the ideas that we might get some information about treatment versus no treatment at all. It's the ECOG trial, E5202, which also utilizes molecular markers to stratify patients into no treatment versus treatment, and then treatment with Folfox versus Folfox plus bevacizumab. And we're going to give you an example of how that plays out in practice in a few minutes, because Atif has a patient who's on that trial, and we're going Very to talk good. about that. Jordan? I'd just like to say the accent data, which I think is some of the most important data today, because I've said that the year that the IFL plus bevacizumab trial was originally presented by Herb Hurwitz, the most important presentation was actually held by Dan Sargent. And everybody ignored it comparatively because the investment bankers had run from the room by then. But the fact is, at that point, it showed that three-year disease-free survival can predict for five-year overall survival. It changed the practice of clinical trials in the adjuvant setting, which is a much bigger impact than one clinical trial. Now, that data showed something else, that there might be different biologies to the stage three patients in my mind, and this is just in my mind, because it showed that in this year's presentation that the difference that occurs in terms of adjuvant therapy benefiting patients occurs early. And then after that, the curves run together, suggesting there's a group of patients whose tumors maybe are more susceptible to chemo at the time right after surgery, and the other group maybe might not be susceptible at all or might not be susceptible at the time after chemo. That might be why it didn't work. But, you know, there's a lot of interesting information coming out of the accent trial, and I think we're going to see more. I presume we're going to see more because they've been at every ESCO since that one. And actually, so. <laughs> actually, you know, I call your colleague, Dan Sargent, the colon cancer's answer to Richard Pito because, you know, he's really using a lot of the techniques that Pito used in the overview in terms of this accent database I was telling the group yesterday, and I'm sure you know this, that he actually is a cancer survivor. He had Hodgkin's at age 11, got radiation and chemo, and I interviewed him at the ASCO meeting. We had presented this stuff about the patients. I said, what do you think about this 1% thing, being you know, a person who's been through chemo? And he said, well, if I were single, there's no way I'd do it. But I've got two kids, and I'm a one percenter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. It's kind of interesting. And of course, that, you know, his experience is really what led him to be so interested in this whole thing. Yeah, and I'm actually very privileged to be able to work with him very closely at Mayo Clinic because there are not a lot of statisticians who have such a great insight into what clinicians need and can utilize statistical tools to move science forward and develop statistical endpoints, whatever. I agree with Jordan. I mean, defining new endpoints, uh, new perception on how clinical trials should be designed has huge impact on everyday practice in the end. Although I have to say, I spent about an hour with him trying to tease out all the statistical stuff, and it still was like, I just had to trust him, you know, because I cannot. I mean, I, I can tell you there are certain papers I have to read and reread and re-re-read, you know. Which, or, uh, remember, he went for an entire degree. <laughs> <laughs> so your, your ability to learn that in one hour might not be quite... Well, it's like, you know, when the patient trusts you as a doctor, sometimes we have to trust the statistician because, you know, it's totally over my head, that's for sure. When my car has a cough, bring my car to the shop, I trust the... Yeah, we go to Dan Sargent for the stats. Okay, so Dr. Kumar, what did you end up doing with this patient? I, you know, gave him these options and taking chemotherapy are not based just on this. He wanted to take the chemotherapy, Mm -hmm. so he's on full Fox 
He's tolerating so far well. He has finished about six weeks of therapy. Any Doing problems well. so far? So far, no problem. So we have another stage two case. We have, we're actually going to make this like a mini stage two symposium real quick. 